Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. arrogance, hipster alienation, a lot of reading, a lot of drinking, struggles to adjust to a land radically different from the one that one has left in youth. Intense wrestling with nearly every major intellectual trend of the last few decades, from hardcore Marxism to intersectionality, to a searing admission of one's own seeming worthlessness, and finally, redemption in the Catholic faith through, via fateful encounters in London and New York with the ascetic and spiritual power of the Catholic Mass. That is the outline of the story told by the noted journalist and public intellectual Sora Barmari in his 2019 memoir, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. You don't have to be a Catholic to be moved by this book. The unrest in our streets and even politically motivated violence by young people who find the very notions of Western civilization and American ideals and institutions irredeemably oppressive and ripe for toppling render this book invaluable for wannabe revolutionaries and for those who know and care about such lost souls. Amari is deeply versed in, er- in nearly every school of political and social cultural theory. His book will save troubled young people hours of reading in dead-end, left-leaning political thought. Be it Foucault, political Islam, pop culture from Pink Floyd to Star Wars, Amari's got it covered. In this instant classic of the memoir genre, we learn what it's like to be raised by Bohemian parents in the Islamic Republic of Iran, and then to be whisked off to Mormon-dominated small-town Utah, and what it's like to be a deracinated, angry young man assumed by his now fellow Americans to be a devout Muslim, but who is actually, in turn, a fervent Nietzschean, a randy hookup-seeking, boozing young leftist, and by his own account, an obnoxious, self-centered, loose young professional in careerist global cities. We encounter along the way well-meaning, earnest, but vapid evangelical Christians, and Jesus of Nazareth, mediated for us by Pope Benedict XVI, and diversity trainers who urge Amari to rail against discrimination he has not experienced. For those of us who are not Catholic, the book provides fascinating insights into the process of conversion to the faith and shows how demanding that process is intellectually and in terms of spiritual self-examination. The book also introduces us to Amari the Man. And and given his increasing prominence on the public policy stage and his key role in the current intellectual renaissance among conservative Catholic intellectuals and the fierce debate between social conservatives, Catholic and non-Catholics, and others on the right, not to mention their critiques of the left about the path forward, this is must reading. It is also beautifully written. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Saurabh Amari about his 2019 memoir, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Thank you for joining us today, Saurabh. Let's start with a title. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say my pleasure, Hope. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Shouldn't interrupt that because nice to hear. Thank you for joining us. So what? let's start with a title. What is the meaning of the phrase, From Fire by Water? Where does that come from? Uh, there are multiple um, layers of meaning in the title. Um, one is uh, the fact of a, of a geographic journey. I, I, as in, I came as a thirteen, about to turn fourteen year old teenager 
from a land of fire, you, you know, Iran, mm. the Middle East, um, and having been born shortly after the Islamic uh, revolution in Iran and all the turbulence of the Iran-Iraq war, those are, that's the geographic fire, which I then crossed over water into into the West. Now, as it happens now, the, the, the West is also um, roiling with turmoil and fire, uh, but that's a separate story. And then, of course, there's a uh, more spiritual, metaphoric dimension to that. Uh, see, um, I felt that through much of my life, I came close to what the Old Testament calls Sheol, um, the sort of underworld or Hades, um, a place of fire um, or damnation and you, which you could taste or encounter before death in the world of the here and now. And of course, from fire delivered by sacramental waters of baptism. So those, I would say the two main um, uh, ideas that the images in the title are trying to convey. But there may be others if readers do choose to read the book that they can about this book. Yes, you made the point about the West is experiencing its own sense of fire at this point. Well, I hope we'll get, we will get to that in the interview because it's very relevant to your book. Um, you made the point in several of the interviews I've listened to you about the book that many Christians you spoke about your background in Iran. They leapt on your announcement on Twitter that you were in the process of converting to Catholicism as an instance of a prominent American Muslim converting to Christianity. You say that you wrote the book partially in order to set the record straight and write, if I was reacting against anything, it was against the materialism and relativism that had taken root at the, in the West beginning in the 19th century. I turned my back against Marx, Nietzsche, and Foucault, not the prophet Muhammad, whose religion had left only faint imprints on my, on my soul by the time I had entered, I entered adulthood. That was lost on many of those who applauded as I crossed the Tiber. What kinds of schools of thought might a version of your younger self in 2020 turn his back on? Are there even greater perils for young people in 2020 now than at the time of your conversion in December 2016? One thing that seemed very different to me from your own youthful radicalism is that yours at least involved, revolved around engagement with ideas, an incredibly rigorous regime of reading. Even your Marxist phase did not seem to involve anything more kinetic than helping to distribute a left-wing periodical. By contrast, as we've alluded to, the mention, the activists of today, such as those who have taken over the Capitol Hill section of Seattle, which you probably know well, having attended the University of Washington, they, those kids seem to lack any grounding at all in any coherent theoretical framework and seem to spend on mayhem and destruction. Do you think your radical self, which you describe very in great detail and very compelling detail in the book, do you think your younger self would have rushed to the Capitol Hill autonomous zone in Seattle to help man the barricades? Or would you at that time, as an intellectual yourself, would you have regarded those activists as ignoramus and grubby nihilists who needed to read more? Yeah, I, I hope. I think it's probably the latter. Um, you know, I think my attraction to uh, Marxism and uh, other kind of radical theories that mostly born of the 19th century um, always had that intellectual's aloofness. And I think people who read the book will see me never quite fitting into the, um, the Marxist milieu that I 
traveled in in my late teens and early 20s. Um, and in that sense, it's a kind of universal story. I mean, a lot of people might be hearing you and I speak and think, wow, that's very exotic. An Iranian guy comes over and then uh, dabbles in Marxism and so forth. A, a series of exotic things are counted in this book. And I think if people read it, they'll find that it's not, in fact, that it's very universal, um, that my sense that I wanted to throw myself into a kind of world historical movement, um, a quest for justice, which remains is a legitimate aspiration, but to do with uh, via radical groups, still was tinged with that sense of alienation, of, of, um, of not quite being able to buy in 100% with anything um, any group of fanatics might say, just because you, you, you know, if you're at all intelligent, you still have that sense of, uh, of spotting the ridiculous or noticing, <laughs> you know, zealotry in its baser sort of funny aspect, the way that um, at least the group that I was a part of, they all kind of began to dress almost the same way and had the same kind of syntax and <laughs> manner of speech. Um, and you can't, you can't look at that and kind of not laugh. Um, now compared to today. Um, yeah. So I think I would be, for example, if I were still my radical self, God, I'm not, but if this stuff were happening now, I would sort of say, Oh, this stuff, you know, uh, it's great that they're doing this, but you know, they haven't really paid enough attention to, you know, Trotsky's transitional program. <laughs> I would be writing, uh, uh, manifestos denouncing them for either not not being radical enough or something like that so it, i think that's just but bottom line is that I, I, i'm an, i'm a writer and an intellectual and so you can't i think very rarely can writers and intellectuals become truly mass movement uh demagogues um i had another oh, and then as far as how theoretically sound or at least learned these new movements are i it's something that i noticed even before the current explosion which is that um uh, you know, marxism as you know especially the 19th century strand of marxism that that i latched onto in the late 90s and early 2000s has a a very clear account of historical transformation um now you may not i i, I don't share it anymore um but but it's it's there's a there's a theoretical depth to it and the idea is that um you know the the true uh, engine of history is uh class conflict and that the uh, uh that it's the working classes um Sort of industrial urban working classes who are the true agents of history. Um, and so that in the working out of class conflict through history with, with the working class or the proletariat as it's, um, uh, like I said, true, the true actors of history, um, uh, history with a capital H moves towards a kind of preordained direction that it was, bound to go, which is ultimately a kind of classless society. Um, 
and there is a romance to it. First of all, there's a kind, there is a kind of religious spirit in this idea that history has a meaning and a direction um, um, that I don't, I, I, see, I find none of that romance in the, in the new movements. Uh, it is it, just often just negativism and, and, uh, mm. Uh, and nihilism. And, and, and nihilism, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, that's a that's a distinct difference. That doesn't mean I'm, are there people doing theoretical work in the movements that are now? I'm sure there are. I mean, it, you know, there's um, magazines and so forth of the new left now, or the new 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 left, whatever you want to call it. Um, but for the most part, for for the underground people, you know, it has the quality of a lot of mass movements around the world lately, whether that's the uprisings in the Arab world or what have you that are decentralized without a kind of leadership, either a political party or one figure, and that just sort of explode without 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 historical sense or anything. It just um and it, it, it with with unclear demands and so forth. If I were if I were advising them as a leftist, I would say, you know, <laughs> clear clear demands, you know, a, a clear kind of political party, you know, and so forth. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's confusing because it's uh, in Seattle, it's, it's, it was started as Black Lives Matter, but now it's nihilistic, anarchist, socialist class struggle, white people versus the people, the blacks are saying, no, you're co-opting our entire, our movement. And this was, this was not what's supposed to be Bernie Sanders style, Che Guevara kind of stuff, but it's, it's interesting. Um, you write in the book that getting back to the spiritual part of it, because we, it's interesting. Your your book is the trajectory of yourself from the Marxist ending up fascinatingly as as a very devout Catholic. You write in the book that, apropos of that, you say spiritual growth proceeds in fits and starts. The various stages overlap, and there's much regressing and backtracking. And you go on to say in the book, I've tried to capture some of the turbulence, haphazardness, and essential mystery of the process. And one of the most moving passages in the book occurs near the end of the book when you're moved in London by a mass just minutes before you approach a priest and says and said, I wish to become a Roman Catholic. And it's it's interesting in the book you you kind of blurt that out and it's it's interesting because the guy is just not the, the priest just accepts that and he just says, Oh fine, you know, wonderful. And then in the minutes before you entered the words you write that you'd been wallowed by an overwhelming sense of regret over the time you'd lost in both radicalism and dissipation. And the index of your book is is almost funny because it it has many entries on the word drinking, and I think the index indexer probably enjoyed. But you make you you're, you don't make many bones about it that you were a very dissipated young man, and that's that's what makes part of makes the book very moving because you don't pull any punches about about the various aspects of your youthful self, and you write. It was nearly unbearable to recall that I'd spent a third or more of a lifetime worshiping idols, the idol of history, which you just spoke about. The idol of process, progress, and above all, the idol of self, when the true God was this gentle, this self-giving. And this passage about time lost makes me think of all those young radicals out right now, because they're going to spend probably the next decade being angry and probably not building this utopia that they hope. And it's just, I just wish I could say, read this book and think about what you're doing and and hold that brick and don't throw it for the moment. Just read this book. Um, uh, can you think of an episode in the book, a particular episode that would reach the hearts of, of those young people and engage them as would-be intellectuals? Because they do fancy themselves as intellectuals just as you did. 
or some of them do. I mean, some of them don't care. That's a good question. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, towards, I think it's the end of um, four or five. Now it's been, I've been writing another book. And so the, the, (laughs) and as you do that, the one you wrote before almost slips from your memory, but um, um, no, but there's towards the end of uh, my um, chapter four, where I, chapter five, where I talk about um, what was it that attracted me to Marxism? Obviously, you know, when I, when I was drawn to, to Marxist thought, it was at a kind of nadir in the sense that it had uh, been utterly discredited. We had, you know, the Cold War had been over a decade earlier. Um, the Soviet experiment was discredited. The Chinese were moving toward market reforms. Uh, y- you know, uh, it, and, and and the kind of liberal capitalist order seemed to be so triumphant. Mm. So why would one want to turn to a movement like Marxism, which at that point, like I said, was at a dear, it had failed in the eyes of, of, of many. And the answer I give is, uh, first of all, I had this sense of wanting to shock the bourgeoisie. And I was at the time I was living in, in, uh, in the mountain West in, in the United States. And so I wanted to be kind of against what, what I, what, what I found around me, which was, you know, quote unquote conformist and, and, orderly and therefore disorder must be good. Um, well, also you, you yourself had been sort of plummeted from a upper middle class, comfortable existence in Iran to suddenly living with a single mom in a trailer court. And that was, that yeah. was part of your attraction, both to Nietzscheism and then to Marxism, correct? Right, that you were- right, right. So, so the sense of di- class disorientation um, was a third factor or second mm-hmm. factor. And then I would say the third, which I mentioned in the book and we just spoke about as well is that, um, Fundamentally, although by then I had declared myself an atheist, human beings are religious animals. And so the longing for ultimate meaning, uh, for uh, a process in, in history in which all accounts are settled and all injustices are made right and um, the, the, the just and the unjust meet there due reward or punishment is a longing that doesn't go away when you become an atheist. And so, and in Marxism, uh, I argue in the book, I had found ultimately this kind of substitute religion, a secularized theology in which, as we said, history has a definite direction and all the, it tends toward the classless society, which comes about as a result of this kind of apocalyptic event of the revolution. And afterwards, through the uh, spilling of blood and the taking of power, uh, all of history's past injustices are settled. And, and, and which is, as I, is, as I say, it is a very, um, ultimately a very religious longing. So what would I say to, to young people today is that uh, we can put those pieces together is that the longing for, the longing for social justice is not illegitimate. The longing for just, you know, justice is a component of the common good of societies. And so, um, you know, we, we, as, as I guess, older in my case, I'm, I'm known as a conservative should not dismiss 
all claims for justice as illegitimate. The question is, um, first of all, really examining what is justice, uh, what is social justice, what is the common good of societies, and then how do you achieve it? Um, uh, and so in some ways, I, sh- I share many of the critiques, still to this day, I share many of the critiques that some uh, uh, some of the young people who are out there have, for example, um, uh, massive inequalities in wealth are obscene to, to the degree that we have them, which are which is eye, eye-watering. Or um, the, the job and health insecurity that many Americans experience, um, but especially on the uh, lower rungs of the social ladder, are, are injustices. So um, the first thing I would say to these young people, to go back to your question, is that, the, your, your, that your quest for social justice is a legitimate demand. Your quest for it is not illegitimate. Um, uh, but ultimately, where can you find an image of social justice that's true justice, an image of what is the true ultimate common good of human beings? Um, and that, I would say, is not in the secularized theology of Marxism, but in the deepest traditions of of the West, of both the classical tradition, the, the Greco-Roman, and then the um, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. That's where you'll find that an account of, okay, what, what is justice? It's giving each his due. Um, who are the people to whom one must give one's due? Beginning with God, and then one's fellow man, to love him or her as oneself. Um, these are... Uh, if you want, if you want theology, go for the, for the real thing, and then you can work out your politics from it. Um, I, I feel like I, I threw out a lot of thoughts there, but um, well, I think that's helpful. I'd, I'd like to do discuss the, the idea of, of freedom because you, you, you see, there is a seeming contradiction in what in what you write what you write in the book about you longed in the Catholic Church with offering a sense of order, plus or, or freedom within order. So you're right. The road to the fullest freedom ran through the cross. And can you explain what that means for listeners who are not Catholic? Because it seems counterintuitive to say, for example, you say one of the first masses you attended, you crossed yourself with your left hand. And I had to Google to find out, because I'm not Catholic, to find out why that was in, in, inappropriate. <laughs> it says it's just not done. And, and a haughty young man next to you scowled and you write, uh, the Catholic Church was already making demands of me. And that doesn't sound very conducive. To me, that something's demanding of you. It's not that it's, that seems to not to be contradictory to the idea of freedom. Could you discuss freedom within the church and what people might be able to find that they're looking for in that aspect? Well, it, before we get to the church, I would say that the the classical ideal of freedom is not merely uh, having the free will to do everything you want and just merely exercising options as between, well, A, B, C are available to me and the mere fact that they're available to me um, and I can choose um, uh, uh, any of them, therefore I am free. That's a relatively modern account of, of freedom. The more classical account of freedom is that one finds uh, that, that one finds freedom only if 
one's acts are ultimately attuned to who we are as human beings and our nature. Um, so um, that I, as a human being, have certain ends that are proper to me as a human being, just in the same way that a horse has a proper end to it. A horse's perfection is in uh, you know, running fast and reproducing or what have you. Um, a, a, even inanimate objects have ends that are proper to them and they just carry them out um, uh, as, you know, without, without doing it uh, uh, rationally or with, with free will. They just do them. Um, and so by, just by the same way that every, everything has some nature and some end that is proper to its nature, so does a human being. And so what, what are the ends of a human being? Um, well, we, uh, we want to be happy. We want to, uh, uh, we want to know things. And so, it, it, and we, through experience and through reasoning, we can come to know what our true happiness lies in. Um, and all of this requires an, uh, an account of limits and virtue, uh, things that can guide you towards what your true ends are. And that means renouncing certain choices uh, because reason or, uh, or uh, the quest for virtue and in the case of religious people, revelation tell you that you won't find your happiness there. Um, so if that's the case, if in this sort of deeper account of human freedom, then freedom really is to do what one ought, what one ought to do given one's nature as a human being, given one what is the true ends of, of a human person. And so if that's the goal of if that what true freedom lies in, as opposed to just picking any option, having ma maximal options and having the maximal freedom to choose am from among them, then such a person would uh, embrace order and limits and authority as the friends of his or her own freedom, not as the enemies of his or her freedom. Uh, and so... Um, this is very, very much cutting against the grain of, of I would say, much of modernity, which does reduce freedom to just having, you know, a wide range of options and having the freedom to choose it from among them. Um, it's a, it's an account of freedom that paradoxically says um, limits make you free. Knowing the path that you have to go through makes you free. Um, Whereas not having guardrails and going in any which direction you want um, can lead you to being unfree. And I sort of recount this in my own life. Uh, you know, just, yes, you can dissipate yourself in strong drink and, and meaningless relationships, but those don't leave you happy because they run against your, who you are as a human being and what your nature says your true ends are. Um, and why does true, ultimately, for me, true freedom run through the cross? Well, because uh, if the true ends of man is to be happy, it is impossible to find happiness, ultimately, outside some transcendent horizon that gives you, gives you a sense of what, who you are, 
where you belong and that would uh, 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 that a transcendent horizon that would uh, represent a loving God who wants you and says you are wanted um, despite your brokenness, despite your failure to always fulfill your nature, despite your uh, violations on any given day. And so how what for me is the most beautiful sign that there is such a God is the God of the cross. Um, the God who uh, knowing that human beings can't by their own free will always reach their ultimate ends, but need to be guided along goes so far as to take their nature, their broken human nature and uh, to, to become man so that man might have a chance of, of, uh, of, of, of truly knowing and being reconciled to God. So therefore, the truest freedom lies for me through the cross. It goes through the cross. When you, when you spoke about guardrails and you were looking for a sense of order, I think there were several aspects in the book that are very clear that you weren't getting it from authority figures. And I think that, for example, your parents were met well and you that they were sort of would be sort of French intellectuals in the middle of Iran and a Islamic Republic. And they were, uh, they wanted to, they didn't, they wanted you to call them by their first names and that, and that kind of thing. And also an example too, of your, in your work experience that you, you, before you went to had one of those crucial moments in the book, when you go to the Capuchin monastery and you, Go, you, you just are very struck by how soothing it is and you, it starts you on it's one of the the, the absolute move, most moving aspects in episodes of the book but you write that before that just that you were there because you were in New York City because you were working for Teach for America as, as a, in a staff job and you were had were hung over and you had been had a particularly sort of semi debauched weekend and you were feeling ashamed because you'd made a mess of your job that day and you knew it was poor performance and you were just feeling you know worthless and I'm useless and and you you knew that it, you'd just blown it and you were wasting everyone's time and you went to your supervisor and you kind of long for him to say, you know, Saurabh, you need to shape up. You, this was disgraceful and you need to pull yourself together. And he didn't. He just kind of, well, well you know, just come come in again and it'll be all right. And you just, it did. he, he wasn't giving you the kind of tough love that, that apparently you needed. But apropos of what you were saying just now about what what you were, were expressing in terms of, of, of the freedom, and I'd like to read some passages from the book that helped me as a non-Catholic kind of understand a little bit about what what it offers people and you say these passages have stayed with me and you said these are several of them i'll just read them i had a soul yes and that soul needed god so not why not be honest about this longing because throughout the book you talk about you know i just i'm not into this i can't do this this is not this is not dignified to be to be a religious person and you write sin not misconduct or aberrant behavior or structures of oppression or what have you sin in the biblical sense of an affront to the divine order of the divine order and a rejection of divine love was a permanent fixture of human life and you continue in another section all human history and all the best art and literature through the ages and across nations told this one story of the inexorability of sin and the yearning for sacrificial expiation and finally, this is a very moving sentence, and it's just very clear. None other, nothing, and no one else worked, only Christ Jesus. Could you talk about that a little bit? Or does it speak for itself? 
um, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I'm trying to think what specifically to address that wouldn't necessarily be just within the four squares of the book. Um, That's true. I, 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 I will say this. Um, a lot of times, uh, one of the most common objections to Christianity is that, look, there are a lot of civilizations that have this story of um, of a of a kind of heroic transcendent figure who um, lays down his life for his friends to echo uh, echo John, and that sacrificial expiation of sin that um, just this idea of sacrifice is common to many civilizations, pagan, Muslim, certainly Jewish, obviously. And so in a way, by pointing that out, I think people will try to demystify Christianity, right? Like it's just one more, uh, you know, all human beings have this hardwired longing and so to point that out is meant to somehow discredit Christianity. And uh, for me, I think through a lot of reading, but especially of reading um, Pope Benedict's books, not just Jesus of Nazareth that I talk about in my own memoir, but other of his texts as well. Um, it, you know, Pope, someone like Pope Benedict says, yes, yes, every, every civilization, uh, including the kind of pagan civilizations, have this longing. And that just tells you that there's this universal fact about who we are, um, uh, where where um, we are, we know somehow that we fall short of a law. We know somehow in our depths that there is a a law governing the cosmos, and that law is somehow also inscribed in our own hearts. So that um, although um, uh, it, you know it took revelation to tell us the Ten Commandments, um, the precepts of the Ten Commandments are also natural precepts that are inscribed in our hearts. We know that it's wrong to um, do certain things, to transgress in certain ways. So so we know we, we, that there is a law. We know that we come up short against it. We come up, uh, we fail to fulfill it. And therefore, that we need sacrifice to somehow propitiate the author of that law. So this is common to many, many societies, nearly all societies, certainly uh, all, all pagan ones as well. So if that's the case, um, then it's not anything for Christians to be ashamed of that Christianity comes to become the ultimate fulfillment of this longing so that um, it, it's not... Uh, she go he goats and and rams and heifers and turtle doves um uh that that um, ultimately propitiate almighty god but god himself assuming our nature and 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 uh offering himself up his own his, his son up as uh sacrifice and 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 so yes there is there a mythic structure in christianity that resembles the other myths of many, many other civilizations, yes. But somehow with Christianity, it's also true myth. 
Um, I'm now borrowing liberally from from the way that Tolkien and and both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien think about uh, Christianity, that that it's this idea of the true myth um, because it also has historical uh, 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 backup, as it were, in the sense that XYZ events happened, uh, uh, the Christ event happened, people recorded it, and you couldn't, of all the religions, as C.S. Lewis says, if you were to set about actually inventing a religion, Christianity is the the least likely, uh, the one that you're least likely to try, be able to. You couldn't make it up, as it were. Um, hey, you say in, you say in the book that that the fact that it was unlikely, paradoxically attracted you to it or convinced you of its truth. Can you yeah. explain that? I, I, I call it the um, I call it in the book the great reversal, and it's a phrase I, I, in some form, I later encountered in Pope Benedict's books. But uh, oddly enough, it sort of it rose up also from <laughs> from in my own heart, in, in and in similar terms, in the sense that, um, you know, in in so many accounts of God, again, both pagan and in other monotheistic religions, um, God is merely kind of this, obviously master of the cosmos law justice giving sinners and and uh and and righteous people their due reward at the end and so the god of the bible is certainly that too but there is this incredible reversal in christianity where the same god not a different god but the same god becomes a baby is born of a lowly Virgin of the Galilee, um, uh, the uh, and ultimately allows himself to be subjected to humiliation by his own creatures. Right, uh, the same Creator God, the God of Genesis, the God of 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 uh, uh, of, of the Exodus, the God um, uh, who shows himself in his in Israel's history with such might becomes it shows his true face and his ultimate true face is is the is the crucified bleeding face of of Jesus of Nazareth and this great reversal aside from the fact that i think is is true um, as a as a factual matter as an account of, of of relations between god and man is just it stirs the heart it's very moving um, and um, the, the idea of the omnipotent becoming weakness, of the omnipotent becoming a baby in a swaddle, the omnipotent allowing himself to be scourged and spat upon and crowned with a crown of thorns and made fun of and, and mockingly called uh, a king. Um, all of it is, again, I think it's somehow the longing for that is... Uh, written into the human heart and, and seared into the heart that you want this. Um, and how wonderful it is that, as I believe, that in, in, indeed that is, it is true. Well, that is very, that is very touching. And I'd, I'd like to ask you a question apropos of Jesus in particular, that you're now 35 and he was roughly 35 during the last year of his life or, or at his death. Is this, is this year of when you're 35 at roughly his age was Easter this year 33. or next year? 
Thir- oh, you're 33. He, no, no. Okay. No, no, Jesus was 33. Oh, oh was he 33? Yeah. I thought he was 30, 35. No, 33. Hmm. He was 33. Well, thank you for the correction. I'll, I will not trust Google again on that. <laughs> <laughs> but did you find at, at when you were 33, did that did the meaning of, of, of being the same age have any relevance to, to you at the time or? Was that just a historical fact that well that you know we're not I'm obviously not Jesus and just because we're the same age doesn't it? Oh, yeah that's about it uh, yeah this it's the latter it didn't it didn't um, it didn't okay. figure figure that way um, uh, but well, uh, you know, it's nice to have saved the world at 33. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to in some of the interviews that people people compare your book to well you're you're like Saint Augustine you're very you say when when whoa 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 I'm, I'm, I wrote a book about my youth but that doesn't make me Augustine so yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> One, one aspect, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I, I don't want to make you even more. Um, the the um, one of the you, you talked earlier about the fact that there's sort of this inherent sort of moral code that if we listen to it, or there's inner inner conscience. You talk a lot in the book about conscience and how conscience led you to your faith. That um, one of the moving aspects of one of the moving episodes of the book that I found was that when you were a little boy, when you were kind of an obnoxious, again, um, sort of heartless, just unthinking as little boys are, little boys can be cruel. And you, 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 there was a scuffle at school or a kind of sort of ritualistic squabble of, you know, sort of a scrum, I guess the British would call it. And you kicked a little boy in the head and you referred to this quiet, friendly boy and your mother. I think you confessed your mother, you took him, your mother, for some reason, you went to apologize or you felt or your mother felt that you should apologize to the little boy. And he was a particularly picked on little boy. And you, you write that uh, that was one of the first inklings in your life, apparently, that I understood from the book as of conscience and the fact that we owe certain basic human decencies to one another. Can you talk about that episode a bit? Or is um, that, did, again, did I just encapsulate it for you? No, no, I th- I'm happy to talk about it. So um, uh, there were, at least when I was a kid, in we had in elementary school in Iran, we had we would move in these cohorts. You know, uh, we were all second graders, but there was like the second grade group A, group B, group C, and it was almost a routine fact that when we were in between our classes, members of these different cohorts would get into fights and. I was basically a nerdy kid um, and I wanted to be a, a protagonist of, of one of these fights, but I never really got to be um, because I think I was seen as, like I said, I, a, a kind of bookish, uh, lonely kid um, in many ways. Um, and so uh, I, I, I always wanted to get into them and mix it up with the other boys and, and, and to be seen as one of the ones who throws the best punches and so forth and, ne- and never was until one day, you know, in the midst of a kind of one of these scuffles where boys on top of each other, rolling around, punching, whatever, I saw a, a kid's head sticking out from under a pile of pile up of boys, you know, doing whatever, who knows. And I just thought, hey, here's my moment. And I just kicked them very hard right in the head. Um, and of course, and it wasn't clear that he even knew that it was I who kicked the, who threw that kick in the crazy maelstrom of boyish energy. Uh, and then afterward, I mean, I was, I'm sitting in class and your first fear is what are the consequences of this? What if, you know, his brain breaks and, you know, he, he loses his mind as a result of the kid. And that was the initial reaction. But then over time, you know, it turned out that he was okay. And I don't think this boy knew that it was I who had kicked him. 
uh, or whatever forgot whoever um, and so as far as worldly retribution were con- concerned as it were I had escaped unscathed nothing I didn't get into trouble the teachers didn't know my parents didn't know and yet for about a week afterward or for however long I was just racked with guilt I wasn't sleeping well I wasn't eating and so ultimately I had to I sort of had to confess to my mom that I had uh, done this thing um, and she took me to this boy's house and you know we were like I said a kind of educated upper middle class running family and we went to his house and this was a very poor family you know just one their entire apartment seemed to me to be the size of just my room in our house mm. and they had basically no furniture they just had their blankets they used the blankets during the day as you know uh, cushions to sit against on the wall against the wall and uh, during uh, evenings they used to to sleep that was it i mean they had nothing else except for you know inscribed somewhere on the wall was the name the arabic name for god allah on the wall and somehow just sitting there you know and, and longing to confess my guilt and the word god on the wall uh was this powerful boyhood moment where i felt my own lousiness it seemed like my conscience was judging me very loudly and um and i i and that i deserve to be to be judged and so years later uh i read a book called mere christianity by an author who's not a catholic c.s lewis and he very decisively to my mind proved by way of the existence of that very feeling that i had felt as a boy that that voice inside who um enjoins you to do good and to eschew evil that that voice according to lewis was proof for the existence of an almighty God and especially a personal God who is, um, who sits as a kind of voice in your own mind, in your own soul and, and judges you after your bad acts or, or tells you you did the right thing when you do the right thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it in the sense that um, I ultimately, there are many proofs for the existence of God. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas has his famous, five ways for the existence of God. But for me, ultimately it was my inability to explain the conscience that led me to conclude that there is a God and that it's, that he's a personal God. Um, uh, uh, I mean, in other words, there are lots of kind of objections to this way of thinking because a lot of modern atheists will say, well, that voice you hear is really the voice of tens of thousands of years of human evolution that has come to favor certain behaviors as socially useful. And they've been ingrained in our brain as patterns of behavior. And that thing that you think consider to be your own conscience is really somehow the effects of, of uh, evolution or, you know, neurobiologists and, and, and so forth will say, well, that's just the firing of synapses in your brain or, or, or flow of certain hormones and so forth. Now, as, a, as an account of the how questions, as an answer to the how questions, I don't question these accounts. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it developed over tens of thousands of years, let me grant you, uh, uh, you know, or that, uh, yes, indeed, as a phenomenon, it's measurable in the firing of certain synapses and so forth in the brain. I grant you all of that, but it, that doesn't answer 
for me, the why questions. Why do we have, uh, uh, why did those processes lead to the development of, of the thing that we call the conscience? And so ultimately, the only way I could say it is that there is a kind of, that the universe has a maker and he has disclosed himself to us, at least to us as human beings, in the form of, uh, of the conscience as this moral voice that constantly tells you that there's an objective rule of what's right and wrong and racks your conscience when you violate it. Uh, and I couldn't explain it any other way but for the existence of a personal God. Well, thank you. I'm going to just remind listeners at this point that we're talking today with Sarab Amari about his book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. And so Rob, you were just talking about the, the, the feeling of, of conscience. And uh, in many of the interviews, and I won't belabor them because I really recommend that people Google your name and the title of the book because it there you speak very well on, on many, many uh, audio um, um, interviews and so forth about other episodes of the book. But I do want to mention one that you do talk about often, and that's your, your friendship with Yossi. But I just mentioned him because – you, you spoke about, um, you realized but what a fine person he was, that you realized no one would say of me at the time of your, you speak of yourself, here's a man you can rely on. So I would ask you, are you such a man now? And who are the men, who are the people that you rely on at this time? Um, can you feel comfortable talking about any of them? Or? Well, you'd have to ask my, my wife. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I would say, I, I always joke because I do, um, go to parishes or you know whatever catholic groups and i talk about the book and i always jokingly end these talks by saying you know i was received into the church december 2016 and i haven't uh i haven't sinned ever since um and everyone obviously laughs so um no i mean the the, the process of of perfecting yourself through your, your natural perfections as a, as a man or a woman of uh, it, it, is a lifelong process of acquiring virtue, uh, which is just the habits of doing the, the right thing uh, at the right time. Uh, that's a that's a lifelong project, and ultimately, in the Christian account, it's a it's a hopeless process in the sense that ultimately, if it were just your own self-willing into becoming a virtuous person, um, it would never happen. It can only happen. Um, through um, divine grace and um, uh, and uh, for Catholics by conforming themselves to Jesus Christ specifically through the sacramental channels that is set in place for us um, certain baptism and, and, and confirmation but then in your ongoing daily life by frequent uh, attendance at mass and confession and uh, which both reminds you of the fact that you haven't been able to, that you won't be able to achieve um, anything close to perfection um, in this life, but that also through grace, you have a chance to start anew the moment you, um, the moment you express sorrow over your sins and the determination to amend your life and then to do your penance. Um, and so that is an ongoing process. Uh, am I 
more in command of myself than I was in my early 20s, which is when this most of the events in this uh, or the core events of climactic events of my memoir takes place. Yes. Um, am I at the summit of perfection? No, and I will never be that. <laughs> well, one aspect of the book I think that is clear is, is, as you were just saying, it's a long and winding road. And I think what's fascinating in the book is when you finally become interested in becoming a Christian, there's yet more reading. And you talk about the reading aspect of the book, and it's fascinating. The traject- The book is really intricately constructed because you have the various Sorab as reader, and yet there's also Sorab the reactor to the emotion and the beauty of the, and the art of, of Catholicism. And it's, 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 you start out Sorab reading, you know, in your Marxist phase, and then you read tentatively in Christianity. And then you have your, your crucial encounters in New York and London. And then you read again intensely as part of your conversion process. And I just wonder, are you an incredibly fast reader? Because that's an enormous amount of reading in a relatively short span. Well, actually, it's not that short. It was most of your youth. But I actually don't consider myself a fast reader. That's a, it's a sad thing because there's just – even still, there's so much to read. I mean, I have um, – I have – you know, first of all, I have I'm a, a book buying addict, so I always am buying more than I can read, um, and that's part of the pleasure of it. And then I'm, you know, I make my way through, but I I make my way books through through my through books very slowly, in fact, because I like to I like to annotate everything, so I do like little notes which I stick in stickies. Uh, I don't I don't write in the book. <laughs> you can tell I'm disclosing some of my weird obsessive habits. And then after I'm done reading that book, I go through it and I take each of those sticky notes um, of the book and turn it into a little book report that no one sees. In other words, just for me, either sometimes a handwritten diary or I create a word document where quotes that I like and then my own sinking through the book. Um, if I learned anything new, I mean, sometimes believe it or not, I still learn new vocabulary um, especially if you read arcane books. And so um, I don't, cons- I, I wish I were the type who can just read a book. I can't, I have to, every book I read, I have to interact with it somehow, write something down, memorialize it somehow. So it's actually a very slow process. Um, and um, so, no, I don't, I don't consider myself a very fascinated. It's just that um, I truly do enjoy it. And I'm, I'm blessed with a job where, even today, I mean, I, I work at a newspaper, but part of it is just reading books is part of the vocation, and it doesn't feel like work for me. It feels like it really, truly does feel like play, which is a cliche, but it's a it's a real blessing, and, um, and ultimately, you, it's a part of contemplation too. You know, it, one has. I'm a father now. I have two kids. Life is very busy. One has to make time carve out time, even if it means for me very early in the mornings to be with one's thoughts, to be with good authors, with the classics. And um, I make a very concerted effort. I think it drives my wife crazy sometimes because, you know, <laughs> I, 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 at times I'm, I'm not available in the way that I, I maybe should be. Um, but um, and you have several I, books going at the same time. I it's several books going at the same time, but it also means that I can be. Uh, if it weren't for that, I would be a much lousier. For the time I spend that way, I'd be a much lousier husband. Ultimately, and I think she buys that explanation. 
Well, apropos of, of your busy multitasking, I want to recommend too that listeners uh, check out your Twitter account because you do ref- you do speak about what you've been reading, and those are very helpful to understand what you've been what what has been meaning meaningful to you recently. And one of them I thought was a, a tweet that was really moving or interesting about this recent court case and. And uh, the, you wrote talk about on June 15th, you tweeted apropos of the Supreme Court case on gender. And I just want to mention this because it, 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 I wonder if you could, could comment on what to read about this aspect. You say you refer to the utter, you refer to John Finnis, the natural law theorist. You say the utter and ab- utter abject and absolute humiliation of Finnis and Finnisism. Finnisism. Can you comment on very briefly, very briefly, because yeah. it gets very into the weeds of how yeah. to think about um, natural law. Um, but I, 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 so I will only open the door this way, and I won't get into it. And let I think if your readers are interested, they can they can read for themselves. But um, Justice Gorsuch, who, from my point of view, delivered a very disappointing, very disappointing um, uh, decision in in a pair of cases having to do with. Uh, whether or not uh, Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, whether the word "sex" in the in the statute refers to uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, um, I, I, so yeah, I mean, everyone knows the cases now. But at any rate, um, Gorsuch was a student of John Finnis, and um, I do, I do not presume to begin to question how serious and important Finnis is as an intellectual, as a serious of natural law. But there is this long-standing tension between what Finnis represents, which is a theory called new natural law, and "quote unquote" the OG, old-school natural law, which is uh, uh, which is also a vibrant and still uh, enduring, and I think vital tradition. Um, so you know, if you if you want to get into it, you know. Read John Finnis, you can find him on Amazon. And then for the contrary view, which is the one that I find more persuasive of how to think about natural law and, and social order, how to organize our political communities, uh, read his critics from the old natural law tradition, Russell Hittinger, uh, Russell Hittinger, Hittinger, H-I-T-T-I-N-G-E-R. I would find, I would suggest one book that is just it's not just about the natural law. In fact, only the last few sections are devoted to it. But it's just a very, very useful book if you want to begin to, to delve into um, uh, the church's entire kind of philosophical tradition. Uh, is a book called um, just Aquinas. It's called Aquinas by a philosopher named Edward Fesser. F-E-S-E-R, Fesser. And um, it, it, as I said, it, it, we're going way beyond my, my own memoir. But that might be a useful contra- contrast is to read Finnis and then read someone like Russ Hittinger, H-I-T-T-I-N-G-E-R. Thank you very much. Well, Sarp, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the Newberg's work, and that is, what are you working on now? And I know you've mentioned it on Twitter, and it seems like you're working on a major book. Yes. So I just finished uh, or submitted a manuscript of my next book. Um, it, uh, Congratulations. That's thank, great. 
Thank you. And we have a title for it, which is The Unbroken Thread. Um, the subtitle is still waiting to be finalized. It'll soon be on Amazon and, and the website of the publisher, Penguin Random House. Um, but we're just trying to finalize uh, the subtitle. Uh, and um, so over the summer, I will be working through my editor's uh, suggestions and edits. Um, and it should be out in spring 2021. And the book poses 12 questions our civilization, our modern, liberal, kind of scientific and technocratic civilization, doesn't ask. And it explores each of those questions through the life and mind of one great thinker uh, from, I, let's just say, from from St. Augustine to Andrea Dworkin. Really? Andrea yes. Dworkin? Yes. Interesting. That's, that's, that's not what I would have expected. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be fascinating. Um, well, and with that, I will just thank the guest we've been talking to today, Sarah Bamari, author of the book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>